I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. Welcome. So today we have scheduled to do the Anchorite, which is the next chapter in the Red Book that we are exploring. But the world is burning and things are very painful and they are seemingly always getting worse each week. There's been some inhaling and exhaling of better and worse, but Carol and I do not on any level want to pretend as though we didn't all just wake up to just more pain and suffering and also brilliant revolution. You know, wherever you are in this, the world is is rich and full. So I know some of you aren't in America, but certainly you're seeing what's happening here. So we're going to light a candle together. And really, in some significant way, I want to light this candle in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, in solidarity with everyone who's suffering right now. And you're welcome to set your own prayers for that and your own intentions, but just sort of honoring right now Um, our citizens who are on the front line of a lot of pain and suffering. So we'll start there. I can feel I'm shaking a bit with the grief and the rage. So here's where we begin today. So what we're going to do, and just feels so important, that that I'm going to spend some time really honoring why Jung's work to me is very important right now, and why I think it is so critical and relevant to what is in fact happening um, with race relations, with police brutality. And please forgive me, you know, I hope this is a safe enough space where we can kind of muddle through. I'm not gonna be terribly articulate. Uh, This may not make a great deal of sense at times, but I'm gonna read a lot to start. And I'm gonna read from Jung in various sources and from James Baldwin who I think is a depth psychologist in his core. Everything that I read from James Baldwin, um, of course, one of the great African-American writers, one of the great American writers, if not one of the great writers, he's such an extraordinary thinker. And he's such a psychological thinker. And he had such an extraordinary capacity to understand and communicate projection. And what what he fundamentally saw was happening with race relations in America that that was profoundly psychological and again, profoundly depth psychological, getting into the unconscious. So I'm going to read a lot and just find our way through this. And and I'm going to begin with a line from the Red Book that we've already read together. But I think it's so relevant. Again, there's a reason we are studying this book together right now. And there's a reason that I'm coming back to it for some sense of connection and soul um, and anchoring because it was written at a time of tremendous pain and suffering and his own inner journey of trying to 
reconcile these opposites and the violence and the projection and the pain worldwide. So on page 204, I'll just read a couple things here from these two pages. He says, may the frightfulness become so great that it can turn men's eyes inward so that their will no longer seeks the self in others, but in themselves. He says, fundamentally, you are terrified of yourself, and therefore you prefer to run to all others rather than to yourself. The spirit of the depths has seized mankind and forces self-sacrifice upon it. Do not seek the guilt here or there. The spirit of the depths clutched the fate of man unto itself as it clutched mine. He leads mankind through the river of blood to the mystery. In the mystery, man himself becomes the two principles, the lion and the serpent. At the end of this really incredible biography, uh, Jung and the Making of Modern Psychology, this is by Sonu Shamdasani, who's the editor of the Red Book and really, you know, has been responsible for a massive resurgence of Jung's work uh, and very largely responsible for bringing the Red Book into the world and encouraging the Red Book's reemergence. He just quotes this uh, line that has always stuck with me, that Jung, Jung wrote to Carrie Baines, um, also a translator of his. This was in a letter in 1959. This is shortly before his death. And he's lamenting that the world hasn't really understood the core of what he was trying to express. And he's in tremendous pain. I think of Gandhi, you know, people who tried so hard to help us see each other as brothers and sisters and and the core of humanity, these people who tried so hard and they die watching the world continue to crumble and they feel anguish and they feel that their lives have been failures. And so Jung is contemplating the possibility that his life has been a failure and it, and it overwhelms him and he's, he's struggling with it. And he says to Carrie Baines, psychology like mine prepares for an end or even the end. The question is only, what are we going to kill? Ourselves or our still infantile psychology and its appalling unconsciousness? Mm. Around the very same time, he um, published The Undiscovered Self, which again, I feel is one of the, these works that should be required reading over and over again. He is getting into the fundamentals of guilt and projection and the necessity of our individual work, not just the painful work, but the coming to life work. And I, I really want to say this to all the activists in our community and, and anyone who is hopefully doing admirable work, trying to face all versions of privilege, white privilege, economic privilege, gender privilege, you know, all of the ways in which we need to attend to our own consciousness. To me, this is all depth psychology. It's all a witnessing of becoming more conscious. And we can do that in political language or we can do it in psychological language. Again, Jung's work and the reason that I can't get away from it and that it, it speaks to me all the time is this core essence of understanding we are not only what we think we are ever. And so he's wrestling with this all the time. And he really, in this one of this, his last works, Undiscovered Self in 1959, he's really taking humanity to task. And you can feel him pleading. It has become so political for him. It is not abstract. It is not 
lost in in some symbolic language. It is political and and filled with anguish. So I'm going to read some of this, and then I'm going to end with James Baldwin's writing because it feels again to me like the two of them are in very deep conversation. This is Jung in the Undiscovered Self, and I'm going to jump around. So know that this is these are not um, quotes that easily you know move from one to the other. I'm going to. I'm jumping around a bit. He writes, the horror which the dictator states have of late brought upon mankind is nothing less than the culmination of all those atrocities of which our ancestors have made themselves guilty in the not so distant past. The European has also to answer for all the crimes he has committed against the colored races during the process of colonization. In this respect, the white man carries a very heavy burden indeed. Since it is universally believed that man is merely what his consciousness knows of itself, he regards himself as harmless and so adds stupidity to iniquity. He does not deny that terrible things have happened and still go on happening, but it is is always the others who do them even if jurisdictionally speaking we are not accessories to the crime we are always thanks to our human nature potentially criminals whether the crime occurred many generations back or happens today it remains the symptom of a disposition that is always and everywhere present and one would therefore do well to possess some imagination for evil for only the fool can permanently disregard the conditions of his own nature In fact, this negligence is the best means of making him an instrument of evil. Harmlessness and naivete are as little helpful as it would be for a cholera patient, and again, or a coronavirus patient, because this is so relevant in the rest of what he writes in terms of virus. For those in his vicinity to remain unconscious of this contagious disease, on the contrary, they lead to projection of the unrecognized evil in the other. Even today, people are largely unconscious of the fact that every individual is a cell in the structure of various international organisms and is therefore casually implicated in their conflicts. It is in the nature of political bodies always to see the evil in the opposite group, just as the individual has a tendency to get rid of everything he does not know and does not want to know about himself by foisting it off onto somebody else. Nothing has a more divisive and alienating effect upon society than this moral complacency and this lack of responsibility. And nothing promotes understanding and reproachment more than the mutual withdrawal of projections. This necessary corrective demands self-criticism. So that's part of Jung's take, okay, on projection and also, again, for all of his explorations, difficulties with race, gender, all this stuff that he was working through, I think at the end here in his life, he's getting really clear about the necessity of white people in particular to really deeply recognize what is hoisted off onto others. And again, it's everyone, it's every living human. We live in samsara, we live in a world filled with pain and beauty and the intertwining of those things constantly. But the responsibility is, is for all of us to really recognize what, what of our beauty, what of our joy, what of our pain, what of our guilt, what of our suffering, 
we don't want to face, you know? And again, I don't think it's just shame. I think in the political realm, it often is turned into shame and guilt in a way that shuts everybody down. But we're also talking about the return of the feminine in such profound ways. And that is what the Red Book is about, is the return of the feminine soul. And we can quibble endlessly about what feminine means. It's for all of us, I think, to find our way to. But, but it's something that is fundamentally missing. And again, you know, I, I'm going to read now for a bit from James Baldwin. Um, I'm going to read from, I don't recall the, I think 1967, I don't remember the date at the moment, the letter to a region from my mind, of my mind, Baldwin. Uh, this is in the New Yorker, you can find it online. I think it's like 25 pages if you print it out. It's quite a long piece, but extraordinary if you've not read it, extraordinary hopefully if you have read it. But he is speaking again to what he can plainly see in his communities as the sort of frigid emptiness of so much of the white population and what is left then for black people in America to have to make sense of on their own and have to suffer under because of the fundamental abuse of power. So again, I'm going to read from this depth psychologist, James Baldwin, and some just extraordinary insights that I think are still so relevant for us today. I do not know many Negroes, and again, both Jung and Baldwin are using terms we no longer use, right? Um, I do not know many Negroes who are, who are eager to be, quote unquote, accepted by white people, still less to be loved by them. They, the blacks, simply don't wish to be beaten over the head by the whites every instant, every instant of our brief passage on this planet. White people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves. Excuse me. Carol, do you want to take over for a bit? I can come back to Baldwin. No, no, just let's all just be quiet here a minute. We're all feeling it. So again, I mean, just really honoring, we're talking about love, self-love. It's what Jung spoke to again. It's not just, we're not just talking about shame and guilt and evil. White people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow and may very well never be, the Negro problem will no longer exist for it will no longer be needed. The white man's unadmitted and apparently to him unspeakable private fears and longings are projected onto the Negro. The only way he can be released from the Negro's tyrannical power over him is to consent in effect, to become black himself, to become a part of that suffering and dancing country that he now watches wistfully from the heights of his lonely power and armed with spiritual traveler's checks, visits surreptitiously after dark. How can one respect, let alone adopt, the values of a people who do not, on any level whatever, live the way they say they do or the way they say they should? The only thing white people have that black people need or should want is power, and no one holds power forever. White people cannot, in the generality, be taken as models of how to live. Rather, the white man is himself in sore need of new standards. New standards which will release him from his confusion and place him once again in fruitful communion with the depths of his own being. And I repeat, 
The price of the liberation of the white people is the liberation of the blacks, the total liberation in the cities, in the towns, before the law and in the mind. I think I'll just end with Baldwin's words there. And um, I know we're gonna, you know, Carol has some of the astrology of just this moment to explore with all of us. Um, so thank you for all being here. I have no summary. <laughs> well, it can't be summarized. Thank you, Satya. You know, I probably like many of you, I'm in touch with very uh, dear friends and family in Minneapolis. And um, I, I know probably more about what's happening in Minneapolis than I do what's happening in Portland. And how, how will we live now? How, how will we live now? And what's our responsibility? When what are the limits of what we can do? I mean, that's, I haven't read Baldwin's letter. I remember the first time, I remember reading Baldwin's letter in The New Yorker, that we need to come back to it over and over. I hadn't really put it together with Jung and Jung's understanding of projection, but the ongoing conversation of what can we not own in ourselves. So in the spirit of that, one of the things that I talked to Satya about that I thought would be useful for our conversation here today is um, where are we astrologically now? And retrogrades tend to be a, a, an around-the-water-cooler office joke these days. At least it's current in the popular imagination. But a part of the, the way we are is our rhythms, the, the rhythms that are in us not being driven by them, not being circumscribed or fated by them, but that we're part of something larger that's moving in us. And one of the uh, ways to talk about what's moving in us is the feminine. And we can talk about it very, very reductively as love and beauty and connection. And we can also talk about it as fury and separation and anger. That the goddess energy isn't just always benign and playful, that she has the capacity to turn on a dime. And any of us as women and the, and the masculine in women and the feminine in the masculine, if any of you have had your hair turn into writhing snakes, you know what I'm talking about. That the kind of fury that we are capable of from a very feminine point of view and what it does to the masculine, not, not as corrective, but as reaction, is a part of something that we, we all have to own. But we also all have to own her smiling face, our, our ability to love and be connected and have empathy for. And this idea that through clearly understanding what someone else holds in themselves that is ours, gives us both connection and separation and individuation at the same time. And in the astrological language, Venus is the instrument of that in relationship to how, how we are in loving relationship, not only with other, but within ourselves. So here is today, Portland, Oregon, 10 a.m. For those of you who are in Europe and far, parts farther away, it, these, if, if the planets are, if the sun is overhead here in Portland, Oregon, it's 
um, sunset in Europe and its sunrise in Asia. So the same planets, the same energies, but located in different parts of the world and in different configurations of light and dark. We are in a period that is called Venus retrograde. And so um, what we're looking at here, here is the symbol for Venus, and you can see that she's very close to the sun. And this small symbol here means that she is retrograding. The planets don't go backwards. The planet Earth is moving, and all of the planets are moving around the sun. And the zodiac is a way that we on Earth have to measure where all this movement is in relationship to our own movement. So there are points in any orbital cycle where the apparent motion, as we're moving and something else is moving, the apparent motion, orbitally speaking, begins to appear as if they're standing still and all of a sudden they're moving backwards. If, if anybody's ever been in a train station where you have trains on either side of you and there are two or three tracks, there are sometimes when you don't know if you're moving, are they moving forward or are they moving backwards, are you in reverse? So the retrogrades we experience, like, you know, when you look in the sky and you see these huge flocks of birds that are all moving together, or you look at fish moving together, a part of how I understand astrology pictures these movements and rhythms is not only is it individual, but it's collective. That something is moving in us and that when Venus love and connection retrogrades, there is a beginning of an out-of-phase relationship with where everything has been. And then a metaphorical way or a psychological way to talk about the nature of the retrograde is that there is a turning inward instead of a turning outward. People are, always, are often only interested in the retrograde in terms of their own natures in terms of their own love lives. And it's one way that we experience it. So all of us experience a Venus retrograde. One of the simple ways I talk about it when I'm teaching is we fall out of love with ourselves. We fall out of love. And if we think of love as, as the engine of the universe, when we fall out of it and begin to experience separation, this is not, then we begin to be sure that we are unlovable and that no one loves us. And that as we look through projection at other people, we're sure they don't love us. In fact, didn't what they just said show you that they are deeply critical of you and that, and so it begins. One of the points that I want to make in the context of now though, is that, Venus, of all of the planets, has entirely the most regular, predictable, delicious, beautiful orbit. This is a drawing by Johannes Kepler in 1609. And what we are seeing here, here on the outside motion of the stars, here what we're seeing here is the signs of the zodiac. And what we're seeing is that the planet makes very regular motions. And what we're seeing here in the middle are, this, is, this one happens to be Mars, but what I want to show you next is Venus. That when the planets retrograde, they make this very 
potent rhythmic shape. And over an eight-year period, you can count on Venus coming to exactly the same place she was eight years ago. For those of you who are journal keepers, what you want to do is go back to, 2000, to May of 2012, which is what I have been doing. What was your experience of your love life, of your self-regard, of what you could own, of what you could take on, of what you could love in yourself, of what you loved in someone else? And that over and over and over and over again, for since we started watching how heavenly movement, we can count on these orbits, we can count on these rhythms. So a part of this Venus retrograde in Gemini is not only a personal inward turning where we may be out of relationship, out of love, out of understanding, out of connection, out of empathy, is that it is a stage in a process, and I don't mean to make it not emotional or not psychological or not spiritual by calling it a stage in a process, but it has an arc and it has a purpose. And a part of this inward turning of coming is, is very much, I think, from the spirit of Jung and the spirit of self-examination of what is yours to hold and what have you given away? What, is, what have you projected in negativity or in ardor and admiration onto someone else? And that being thrown back onto your own resources and to say that the quarantine has thrown each of us back onto our own resources is putting it mildly. So not only are we in the larger planetary rhythms in a huge, huge contraction of energy in which it isn't possible to breathe out, that we're on a big long inhale before we have another long exhale, that a sort of a smaller, more intense, more personal, more emotional, more heartfelt part of the larger contraction and confinement is this coming to terms with love and what we love, how we love ourselves, how we express that love, how we're able to move that love back out into the world following this period of introspection. So I want to talk a little bit about the, um, the introspection period itself in its utter reliability, in its predictability, in our joining the flock and the herd and the school in how we move with all of this, there is a knowable arc to the development and there's a timing of it. So I thought it might be useful to talk a little bit about this. In March of this year, for those of you who, like I do, um, when it's not too cloudy, love to see the sky, Venus was the evening star. She was a beautiful, 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 bright star in the West. And when she is at her maximum elongation, which is 46 degrees of longitude away from the sun, it's, it's when she's brilliant, and she was brilliant in March. But then she and the sun, from the point of view of Earth, begin to get closer together, and she's not as bright and she's less visible. So by the time we got to May, she was 12% illuminated. 
And beginning in April 9th, she's moving here in the early degrees of the sign Gemini. And by the time we get to May, we can barely see her. We can only see her a little bit. And she begins her retrograde on April 9th. And then she begins her apparent motion backwards. And as she moves along here, she came into an exact conjunction. She'll come into, in her retrograde, she'll come into an exact conjunction with the sun, what's called the inferior conjunction, which means she's between the sun and earth. We won't see her in the sky at all. She's subsumed by the sun. And if we lived in a world in which we actually looked at the sky and took our rhythms from the sky, we would know that she was in the underworld because we wouldn't be able to see her. She's traveling with the sun. And in old language, she has brought her light to the king and they are traveling together in the underworld. And they are going to bring something from their journey in that deep, dark place, in this not visible period where things are turning inward. She's going to reemerge. And she's going to reemerge and become visible again, but she will have been changed by, quote, her descent, unquote. So a part of, of where we all are is we are in the dark and turned inward, out of love, traveling with the king, the heart, to find what we can find, not in the light. And I find this so relevant for the Anchorite passages because Jung in the desert is contrasting logos, word, God, and idea with the fecundity and tenderness and nourishment of the desert and the dark. So this period that we're in is very much, how do we hold that? How do we remember the light inside the dark? And we're in that period right now. So if any of you are familiar with the descent of Inanna, and I know many of you who are here with us today, I mean, I learned about the descent of Inanna from some of you and and some of our goddess journeys back in the late 80s and early 90s. But Venus herself, the descent of Inanna is an, an uncannily accurate description and story of how Venus, the planet, descends into the underworld where she dies, gives up her power, and is scourged by her dark feminine self, and in her reanimation and her reascent, rises with all of the accoutrements that she has sacrificed as she has made the journey. So she's going to come to her direct station on June 25th. But she is going to start making her appearance as the morning star around June 13, 14, 15, what is called the heliacal rise. She's going to come out of the dark. She's going to come out of the underworld. She will have been transformed by her journey in the dark, by her loss, by her sorrow, by malevolence and, and evil and difficulty. And in many cultures, who lived with the sky, like the ancient Sumerians, like the Mayans, when she comes back, she comes back as a warrior. She's still who she is, but she is in her aspect of how she is going to become effective in her relationships. She's not going to turn into Medusa, 
not talking about that, but I have this feeling as we get into June, as the feminine, which is not, not, you can feel her. She's not very present in any of this, even though clearly all of us, all of us as women and the feminine in all men is in this deep, dark, descended place out of love. But very shortly, she is going to begin to make her appearance and, and she's going to be pissed. So a part of what we can look forward to in ourselves, in our harsh inner judgments, in our self-recrimination, in our fury, as it both turns itself inward and expresses itself outward as she rises. And, you know, almost every, every account that you read about the heliacal rise, she bolts back in the sky. So all of a sudden it's like, boom, all of a sudden we'll see her really, really powerfully. And, and when she reappears as the morning star in the, in the next couple of weeks, the shadow period. So this whole period goes from early May to the end of July, where we are in this process. And I want to read something in another class with which I'm working. We just have finished looking at the tale of Amor and Psyche. There's a point at which Venus has disappeared from the world. And in its own way, it's very much about what we've just been talking about. It's about the descent. And because her son, Cupid, has been wounded in his love life, the world is in a very sorry state. And a white bird, the sea mew, that's, this is from Apuleius's tale, uh, retold in Amor and Psyche by Eric Neumann. The white bird, the sea mew that swims over the surface of the waves, oared by its wings, hastily plunged into the deep bosom of ocean where Venus has retreated. There he found her as she was bathing and swimming and taking his stand by her, told her her son had been burned, that he was full of anguish at the wound's great pain and lay in peril of his life. Further, he told her, the whole household of Venus has been brought into evil repute and suffered all manner of railings because, said the bird, both thou and he have retired from the world. He to revel with a harlot in the mountains, and thou goddess to swim the sea, and so there has been no pleasure, no joy, no merriment anywhere, but all things lie in rude, unkempt neglect. Wedlock and true friendship and parents' love for their children have vanished from the earth. There is one vast disorder, one hateful loathing and foul disregard of all bonds of love. When I came to this again, at the same time that Satya and I have been talking about this, and that I've been looking at the Venus retrograde, I think about the world being out of love. But I also know in the, in the fullness of time and in total trust in the cycle, that, that love and connection and relationship, richer and more potent because of its descent into the darkness will re-enter all of us in the next stage of our mutual flying and swimming, and that it will begin to make its presence felt in palpable ways, no matter what actual action or, or place it is that we are able to stand, that we will come back into love. Thank you, Carol, so much. I, 
I'm so appreciating the fine point on this coming back into love. Um, and again, just really feeling that, you know, I think it can end up sounding so trite if we don't speak of it in relation to the darkness and the difficulty sometimes, but really in the undiscovered self with Jung, with Baldwin's writings, it's all fundamentally about, we have to be able to love ourselves and we have to be able to love each other. And that's it. You know, in the end, that's, that's all that either of them is saying and not because it's easy to do or that we can't just project niceties onto each other and nobody ever does any work, you know, but that it, again, it's just not, it's not only about engaging with how bad we are all the time or how mean we are it's, or, or how hateful we are. It's also like, where is my love? Where is my love for myself? Where is my love for the trees and my love for all of humanity and hopefully all of life. So I just am so grateful to you for taking us on that journey of Venus's retrograde right now. It feels so poignant. We've been here before. We've been here before over and over and over and over again, and we will be here again. And we'll be confronted with the same challenge to be wholehearted again. There aren't any prescriptions in it, really, not really except uh, a certain way of being, a certain way to be. And, and again, um, this is a little bit of plot jumping, but in the process, I, I know all of you, all good students have read The Anchorite, and if you were looking eagerly forward to discussing The Anchorite, we will get to it. But I just want to say that in the process of taking on the journey into the desert, the journey to dryness, the journey to logos and the word and the discovery in the middle of the desert of the garden, Jung's discovery in the middle of light, the light in John, the light in God, the light in the hermit, the light um, in the word, that he also finds himself in darkness. He finds the light in the dark took me back to Dante. I thank um, my friend Susan, who introduced me to the John Sinclair translation of the Inferno. And in the Inferno, very much like Jung in his journey, we all know the beginning of the Inferno. In the middle of my life, I found myself in a dark wood lost. And Dante is in, in his wandering, he's confronted by a leopard, and a lion, and I don't remember the other animal that he encounters, but he's dissuaded and frightened of the straight way of the path, of the dry, hard path. And he encounters the poet Virgil, and the Virgil says to him, you have intercession. There's a woman who loves you. And Dante finds himself in relationship to Beatrice and Beatrice in relationship to Lucy, which of course is light and Rachel. And Dante finds himself saying, how can I be a coward when I have this love around me to make the journey? And I think of that, I think of these um, other iterations of the dryness and the hardness and the sweetness and the fullness and the light and clarity and the dark and its potency echoed in other places in our history and that we arrive again here at this point in the Red Book at a time when we're in the middle of this retrograde and when the world is burning. So 
not just as a dry, dusty, scholarly take on history, but I really tr take heart from the experience of those who have gone before us and who, like Jung and Dante and Thomas Merton, and we'll, we'll talk about all of that next time about the anchorite, that we, it's not a map, but it's a, it's a light, it's a lantern. Thanks, Carol. So we would love to honor what's in the room. And if folks want to share some things or ask questions, I know when the world is as filled with grief and, you know, also rage and, and anger and vulnerability and pain, um, it can also just become a bit chaotic, sort of trying to share different reactions to things. So again, we want to try to keep this a bit mythic and soulful, but just honor if people want to share some things. Samantha, did you want to share something? I did. Hi. Thank Hi. you so much for doing this. This has been just such a gift every week. Thank you all so much. When you started what you were talking about with Jung's uh, ideas about being free and so on and so forth, I'm so reminded of um, Steve Biko's uh, from South Africa, his black consciousness um, ideology and the whole idea of what do you value? What do you value in yourself as a human extracted from what you know the white man thinks of you or the government thinks of you how do you value yourself and i think we all can ask that question what do we value in ourselves? what do we value as a society and i think that those are really things that we really need to take time and and consider and really let that sink into ourselves and really take a stand for uh, what's important to us with this Venus um, activity that's going on for this month. So I just wanted to comment on that because it just came in so strongly when you mentioned those words in the very beginning. Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, I really, I was, I really steeped myself in the history of South Africa for a very long time in um, doing my, um, my history degree. It was a long time ago, but read a lot from that period, Steve Biko and Nelson Mandela's writings. And again, just the psychology is so profound that it's, it's, you know, I think we can miss the profound, again, depth psychological understanding of what it means for each of us, regardless of the bodies we were born into, um, to become fully ourselves and how important that is. And the life, you know, I mean, Samantha, I feel like that the values, the life and, and the feminine, again, of coming out of a militaristic, you know, so much of our societies are built on judgment and militaristic values and jailing. And, you know, we're seeing that so much power, failure, all these things that don't serve life. It doesn't serve any of us, you know. So, again, just to come back to that sense of the, the value, what do we value? I, I love that. Can I, can I add something as a European woman? Uh, I've actually really been pissed, as uh, Carol, you were mentioning, about these, da these Danish newspapers that I receive. I'm in Italy, but I, I receive my Danish newspapers online. None of them, no, apart from one, they haven't mentioned it as the, what's going on in the world, but they, it's as if they're completely neglecting what's going on in America as if it's not none of their concern. Mm -hmm. So when you mentioned that Jung was actually as a European saying, this is our problem as well. I was considering if you might be a step ahead as Americans, because you actually have to face this, oh. but we as Europeans are not facing it. And we have just as many situations maybe that, that are, we are not taking our responsibility in our daily lives to, to confront this. 
So we have a Danish prime minister. She's a woman. I don't think she's a woman. I think she's a very, uh, and we mm. might have a really great social system in Denmark. And, but wow, they, there's some really bad stuff going on and, and, it, and it's being hidden behind. A well, let's say, I'm going to just interrupt Helene, because I think for me, just the languaging, I, I really take everything you're saying and value it so much. This question of, of for me, it's about detoxing from patriarchy. It's not, is she yeah. a woman yeah. or not? It's, have we detoxed from the militaristic, values or the power values whatever role that we're in whatever body we're in no i just think there's a bit of a super there's something very superficial in the way that it's being looked upon and or the way that they are taking their responsibilities that they aren't addressing these things yeah no danish uh, or no european i don't feel that they're taking up the thing what is going on in america this is so much a part of us as well i mean it's not we're we're a whole world we can't and so we're hiding against, oh, but Trump is doing this and Trump is doing that. But that's not the point. Yeah. The point is that we have to confront that as well. And we have to be. Thank you, Helene, so much. We're, uh, I'm going to get to a few other questions, but I also just want to honor. I think we have that in the States, too, that, you know, often if people from the South move to um, to the Northwest where we have less diversity, there's often a feeling like it actually maybe is better in the South because everyone knows it's there. And they're actually yeah. having those conversations. So I hear you saying that on another level in Europe of just the consciousness is being raised. And, and hopefully you're right that something's happening here because right now. Well, it's, I'm just very happy that you're taking it up and that you're actually postponing the Anchorite to honor this because I think it's so important. And I and it really makes me, although it makes me, the whole situation is sad, it makes me very happy that or it makes me, I think there's a lot of empathy and I really really appreciate it. I think that's what I want to say. (laughs) I would would like to say um, something in response to that, just briefly. Astrologically, we're at the end of of many, many different interlocking cycles, some of them 800 years old, some of them 20 years old. and, And I had been superficially calling this the great contraction which is putting it mildly with quarantines, COVID, and, and uh, what we're facing today. But in 2017, 16, 17, after Trump was elected, and, the, and, the, and he began to contract the world, began to talk about building the wall. And as Brexit was happening, and as Venezuela was erupting, and Hong Kong was already stirring, it occurred to me that from... Uh, from a transformational point of view, from an alchemical point of view, that we were going to be sealed in with our shit, not to put too fine a point on it, and that we would not be able to project out onto the rest of the world anymore, that, that we sealed in at our borders would have to cook in it. That hasn't come to pass, although I just saw an article. They're still, you know, privatizing property on the border and they're still building the, the wall. But the, the virus as an expression of a very large contraction, to your point, Helene, is bringing us all to, our, to this. And this is a part of the inward turning and a part of the cooking. It's a part of the, I think, a part of the alchemical cooking, which is black and difficult and hot and that to to say don't do it or to try to medicate it or make it go away or make it like it was too soon keeps us away from from the gold that's underneath i mean i i have clients in leipzig and i have clients in seoul south korea and i'm hearing what's going on 
from clients on a regular basis all around the world. So my sense is that truly globally, we are beginning to get our arms, not contain it or to solve it, but that we are all beginning to come to it. And that isn't just my sort of naive optimism going on. You know, there's a, there's a lot of information from a lot of different places that describe what you're talking about, which is to get to it. Ojalá, hopefully. We've got Francis, and then let's, we'll maybe do one more after this. Um, hi, Francis. Hi, Satya. Hi, Carol. Um, my 20-year-old son, until university kids were sent home from campus because of COVID, spent much of his sophomore year in college in solidarity with African-American minority students in protest at his university, Syracuse in upstate New York. I'm not sure how much learning he, academic learning he did this year. His, his year really was about social justice, which deep in his soul is how he's wired. And of course now he's home because college kids got sent home. And so this week and Friday in particular, as people across the country protested, including where we live in Dallas, he was in communication with people across the country and considering his own voice in Dallas. And, and because he was home, I saw so clearly the psychological distress he was experiencing and how deep in his soul he's experiencing this. And I, and I worry about his psychological health. Earlier in the day, I had sent him the link to the mayor of Atlanta's talk, and I saw somebody sent it through here just now. Uh, and for those of you who have seen it, it's, it's incredibly powerful, but part of her message is, this isn't honoring the civil rights movement. This isn't the way to manifest civil justice. Go home. I can't protect you. I can't protect my black sons. Go home. Mm. And it was clear my son, he hadn't watched it because I, I don't think he wanted to hear that message. Mm. And so this part about we have to do our inner work and so much of this is about projection I know this is a long lead into my question. What I'm struggling with is how do we engage really young people who don't have this language of projection? And he, I've been into Jung for forever. He knows of my work and journey, but it's not his language. It's not his journey yet. Hearing this conversation, I'm just wrestling with how do we engage young people? How do I engage my son in this part of the conversation? for his own psychological health, for the health of society, and have these passionate young people see that it's got to be a balance between activism in the world, but also their own work. Thank you for giving me all that time. Thank you, Francis. I really appreciate that question so much myself. I mean, I found Jung's work in my early 20s, and you know, it was incredibly important to me, and really most of what I do is trying to bring this work to younger people because um, because I think it's life-saving. I mean, I think it's personally life-saving when we exhaust ourselves either trying to save the world or trying to stay alive in our 20s or teens, and then we lose our minds and then we're sent to psychiatrists or therapists, whomever, and there's medical approaches or diagnostic approaches, but really we're in a world that is filled with grief and it's quite literally endless. And we are grieving all the time and we want to change it. 
you know. Um, I don't know really the answer to your question. I mean, I will say that Jung was very strong on this point, and I think I'm quite strong on this point. I mean, anyone that proselytizing is useless. I mean, trying to get anyone to be, you know, to see the world the way you see it is useless. So that you can continue living in your truth and honoring how you work and pray that he stays safe and love him. But, you know, I'm frankly, my, it's difficult. I mean, I'm talking to young people who are exhausting themselves in the protests. And I wrote a long, I don't know if I'll end up posting it, but a long piece yesterday called Letter to a Young Activist. So maybe I'll send this to you, Francis, and you can, you know, but it's a long piece of, of sort of trying to honor that, frankly, I mean, I'm not in the streets anymore because I exhausted myself being in the streets in my 20s and early 30s. And the truth is, I don't think I'm useful there anymore. I don't think that I can take it emotionally anymore. But I used to be organizing this stuff and standing in front of riot cops with my, you know, two peace fingers in the air, you know, I mean, so I'm grateful for young people who aren't doing the inner work yet, because we need the external work to happen too. You know, that's the irony a bit. I mean, it's like the external work has to happen. Shit has to get burned down. And again, I mean, there's all this kind of political stuff. Like, we know it's not just the peaceful protesters who are burning it. We know there's infiltration from the right, excuse me, from the white, white supremacy. That's always been the case. All civil rights has been infiltrated, you know, so we get that. But, you know, you can cook for him. You can love him. You know, you can take care of him and just hope, I think, in the long run that he finds his way to where he needs to find his way. But he's wrestling with grief in the world and there's a lot of it. And, you know, (laughs) it's too much to bear. So when you're early in the world, it's too much to bear. I mean, I think we all gain skills either of dissociating or learning how to process how much grief is in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, the goal is to try to hold it all. But a lot of young people have gone crazy because this world is not set up for life. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. Good luck. Take care of yourself too. Yeah. Again, and all this, and this is so, you know, pleasure and joy is part of our survival here. It can't be the last resort. Yeah. We have to remember pleasure and joy. I will say Audre Lorde's two pieces, poetry is not a luxury and erotic as a form of power. I think somebody can fact check me there are just, so important and so stunning and such a important retrieval of of the feminine in this fierce way to say look this can't be a last resort poetry pleasure the erotic eros the feminine cannot be a last resort or we are all going to burn in this militaristic painful split society uses of the erotic yeah thank you uses of the erotic audra lord come back to love come back to love Thank you all so much. Glad to be part of this. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast. <laughs>